Binding with priors, my joys and desires. A good omens podfic, written by Entangled Now and Naro Moro, and read by Jarp. Summary In which Aziraphale opens a box and Crowley decides to go big or go home. Don't get fairies wet, don't feed them after midnight, and Definitely don't let one into your bathtub. Sign never leave. Chapter 1 Aziraphale takes his walk through the woods a little later than usual. An unscheduled nap in the afternoon sunlight was to blame, and now there's a fading warmth to the day slowly seeping into the corners of his cottage. Originally, his excursion had simply been to enjoy the fresh air, the sights and sounds of nature. A meandering path through the trees and over a small brook, until he reached the top of the hill where an old monument stood. Then he'd turn around and head back along a slightly more travelled trail. The reason he'd moved to the village of Tadfield in the first place was to escape the fast pace and mostly self-inflicted pressure of the city. To simply exist somewhere after years of being pushed to do his best, and then more than his best, and then eventually to give everything he had until he was left hollow. To be able to just walk, in no particular direction, with no schedule, was very freeing. It had taken a few weeks for Aziraphale to notice the traps, carefully left in the hollows of trees and covered with branches, or on the banks of the small stream hidden on the leaves and sticks. He hadn't worried overly, I seemed to be non-lethal, and he hadn't been in the village long enough to know who they might belong to. And then he'd been introduced to Sergeant Shadwell, retired, who seemed to have made himself the village's protection against... Well, he hadn't been quite sure. The unseen things was all that Shadwell would offer, with a tip of head and a tap of nose that Aziraphale thought he was supposed to read many things into, but in truth had been rather bewildered by. Madame Tracy, who wrote for and printed the local paper, was quite happy to clear up the matter a few days later. Fairies. Shadwell was trying to catch fairies in the woods. Unsurprisingly, all the man was catching instead were squirrels, shrews, rabbits, hedgehogs, and, on one memorable occasion, three confused frogs. Aziraphale isn't sure whether they are proving to be a disappointment, or if he perhaps believes them to be fairies in disguise. But since Shadwell only seemed to check his traps every week or so, Aziraphale had taken to releasing anything caught in sight during his afternoon walks. Though the poor creatures were rarely happy about it. Reactions ranged from stubbornly staying in sight until gently tipped out, to hurtling out so fast it was a wonder they touched the ground some days. It felt like a good deed, sparing some small creatures the fate of expiring inside a dark box that held a lingering scent of cigarettes and mildew under whatever Shadwell baited it with. He's fairly sure raisins had made an appearance at least once, though Aziraphale wasn't ruling out the possibility that they'd just been squashed rabbit droppings. The last sun picks out the path through the trees, the leaves still vibrant, even as summer shades into autumn. He passes the small brook, reduced to a trickle by the long days and lack of rain. It's only a matter of a step to get him across to the other side, 
where several large beeches grow dense enough for shady sport. There's a trap settled where the roots of the two large trees almost entwine, a box half out of its leafy covering, shaking gently as if repeatedly knocked from inside. The bounce of it suggests Shadwell had caught something large. A rabbit, perhaps? Aziraphale wanders closer, aware that the tromp of his boots probably sounds ominous and threatening to a small trap thing. You poor thing! You're right! I'll have you out of there in a jiffy! There's a long, quivering rustle, a patter-patter, as if something fast and light is moving inside. Aziraphale has never heard the noise before, though he's freed all sorts of creatures. He wonders if one of the magpies or crows had become curious, or maybe caught sight of something shiny and became trapped inside. He's never found a bird in a trap before, but it's not completely out of the realms of possibility. He kneels down beside the box, carefully picking leaves and twigs of the thing before lifting it as gently as he can. Whatever's inside doesn't seem to weigh very much. If it's a rabbit, then it's a small one. The shape doesn't stay in one place, but shifts about, rocking the box as it moves within. Steady now. It's all right. I'm not going to hurt you. The top levers up easily enough, but Aziraphale has learned to be careful. If it truly is a bird trapped for a day or more inside, it might fly straight for his face. A panicked beak could do a lot of damage, even through his glasses. Easy. It's okay. I'm here to help. He keeps his voice as soft as he can to avoid frightening it any more than it already must be. You can be off back into the forest now. Whatever is inside the box is staying near the back, and he relaxes a little. Today it looks like he'll have to gently tip it out and hope it isn't too weak or injured from thrashing to make it back to safety. I can put you down by the tree, but you'll have to do the rest by yourself. I don't... The words dry into nothing, Something in his throat giving a crackling noise as it slowly pinches shut. Because shifting the box into the light has revealed what looks exactly like a human leg, immeasurably small with a tiny bare foot. He keeps tipping and the shape inside shuffles closer to the edge of the box and Aziraphale freezes. A tiny face with a mop of rust-dark hair stares up at him, wide-eyed, curious, and uncertain. Bah! Aziraphale manages. But any further words, or even word-shirt things, are lost to him. The creature in the box has the form of a man, long and lean and oddly lovely. Aziraphale can't help but notice. It's completely nude where it sits, now peering curiously from the open front. Its small hands are braced on the sides, half shadowed in the dark interior. But Aziraphale can still see that the creature's back is not bare. Four shifting wings are attached there, a fluttering interlock of the deepest midnight black with a rich ruby red, like the wings of a cinnabar moth. They seem almost too big for him as they shiver and flutter against the walls of the box, before they still and gently lever down, draping the small creature's back like a cape. 
The undeniable reality of him has stolen all of Aziraphale's senses. Shadwell has caught... Well, it seems safe to assume that this is one of the unseen things he was so insistent about. Hello there. It comes out almost by accident, as soft as Aziraphale can manage. He puts it down to his inability to meet someone new without at least attempting some sort of polite introduction. He's not expecting a reply. Even if this creature does speak, it seems silly to expect they'll understand the same language, or that Aziraphale will be able to hear him. The difference in lung size and vocal cords must be significant. Hello. Aziraphale almost drops the box. The voice is quiet, but there's a ring to it that carries perfectly well to him, and it's clear by the tone and the cautious raise of tiny eyebrows that it's not simply mimicry, but a greeting returned. For some reason it rasps along Aziraphale's spine like a fresh breeze of summer, like a gentle caress of air around his cheek. He kneels there in the dirt, so very still from the shock of it all, and the creature finally slides to the edge of the box, shifting and moving its legs underneath it slowly, as if testing Aziraphale's friendliness. There's a small crease of dark brows and a curious glint in harvest-gold eyes that speak of intelligence and will and Aziraphale feels that he's being observed and appraised in return. It must have been trapped there for quite some time, and a worry about it needing medical attention flits through Aziraphale's mind, even if he distantly knows how ludicrous it sounds. His mouth refuses to open to offer it, though, not that he believes himself capable of dealing with impromptu medical difficulties on a creature pulled out of legends and myths of the area. A fairy! Aziraphale's breath crowds his throat, his heart beating in the roof of his mouth, when the world that has been awaiting him for the last minute finally lands on his tongue. He's pinned in place, but surprisingly not afraid. The fairy stands in a swift, elegant movement, and Josiraphil's thoughts scatter when faced with its nudity, sudden and unabashed. Even with the significant difference in size, it's quite obvious the creature is perfectly shaped as a man, and color rises to Aziraphale's cheeks when he realizes it's very impolite to stare, which is exactly what he's doing. But Aziraphale doesn't have time to consider the scope of his embarrassment before there's a quiet flutter of black ruby wings and the creature rises into the air, its small lovely face now inches away, from Aziraphale's nose. Thanks, it says. The word is perfectly audible. The soft ring of it reaches him as easily as any human speech might. You're most welcome. Aziraphale's own voice is slightly wobbly, a buffer for any uncomfortable silence or awkwardness in its jarring politeness. He feels the weight of his glasses sliding down to the tip of his nose, and his mouth falling slightly open while he watches the fairy fly up, before it stops, glancing back to Aziraphale one final time, before disappearing into the thick copse of beaches. Aziraphale blinks a few times into the haze of the afternoon, not entirely sure time is still ticking, 
until he sees leaves moving in a low branch. What exactly just happened? Aziraphale sets the box down where he found it, his hands trembling slightly, and makes his way back home. The dirt rustles beneath his feet on the trail, that, even if well-traveled, is still covered by a canopy of trees. They swing and whistle at Aziraphale's side as he walks, and he can feel the way the air carries a sort of exhausted tint to it, the day yawning into dusk. It's not an extraordinary thing, what he'd experienced, not in the grand scheme of things. But the world feels different now all around him, as if he's finally been made aware of its edges and shades in a way he wasn't before as if he's suddenly been granted the sharp gaze of artists capable of seeing ten different colors in one bleeding sky. Aziraphale treads back to his house that sits at the limits of the forest, thinking about what little material he's read on the subject. It's his own way of coping with things, reading, researching, finding answers because even in its crushing impossibility, there's still a reassurance in knowing he could find something about the matter sitting in the pages of a book. Something to grasp and hold on to. Fairies had been rarely seen, if not at all, in the last century. There were some places in the world, it was said, where the forests were old, and the roots ran deep that shadowed the entrances to faylands. Places forgotten by time, where the oak trees were far more alive, and the well of clear waters did more than wet and soak whoever dared to sink in them, ensuring you could never go back to the real world. Or at least that was what he'd read. Aziraphale had never been someone who believed in such things, mostly because it had always escaped the range of his own experience. But he's suddenly grateful he'd not said anything more compromising in front of a fairy. He doesn't know how easy it could have been to make a promise to stay forever in that clearing of the forest, to give away his life or or perhaps offer himself in marriage. He hadn't known enough to be afraid. His house welcomes him warmly, the light of the dying sun shining over his roof. He steps inside, taking in the reassuringly normal state of his kitchen and his living room, just as he'd left them earlier today. It's getting late, and the day continues, as it always has. He showers quickly to get rid of the unpleasant sensation of the sweat from his walk, tracking on his skin, before shutting off the taps. Once ready, Aziraphale goes down the stairs and into the kitchen. Through the window, he can see the thick greenery of the forest just at the edge of his garden. He hadn't realized how close it was until now. It looms in its nearness in a way it never had before, the shadows of the trees stretching over the thick grass. He doesn't know what to expect now. Why he's intently looking over the hedge as if hoping to see a swirling flash of motion in bright colors suddenly ripping through the air. It's absurd. Aziraphale sets the kettle to boil, chopping the leeks and onions to add to his omelette. Routine, mundane things he's done a hundred times. But his mind keeps drifting to a blur of black and red, to the shape of a tiny leg and the tilt of a browned head.
a magical thing he'd never imagined made flash. As he sets himself at the table to drink his tea and eat his meal, he has to acknowledge that much as part of him is trying to smother it, there's been a shift in his world. An unexpected peek into the back of what's possible, which now apparently includes beautiful fairies and, God forbid it, maybe a goblin or a troll? It's not terribly late when, after putting everything away, he climbs into his bed with a book, already dressed for the night. But distracting himself from his thoughts seems impossible, try as he might. Every time he tries to focus on the story, he keeps seeing that small, intelligent face hovering before him. His book lies forgotten, opened on his chest, while he replaced the meeting from earlier. How frightened the poor creature had seemed, as if expecting a zero he could or would do him harm. Maybe this hadn't been its first interaction with a human. If he'd had a run-in with Shadwell, it would make sense for the poor thing to be very. Outside, Aziraphi can hear the distant drone of a bullfrog, probably by the river. He can feel the soft breath of the wind rushing in through the open window. He isn't really in the mood for reading. He sets his book aside, turning off his lamp and sliding fully under the covers. His lashes flutter shut as he feels a heavy, bone-deep weariness suddenly tugging at him. The mattress is cool and inviting, with its supportive gift that makes Aziraphale feel delightfully relaxed. Sleep comes so very easily. He doesn't know how much time passes, but he can see the pale band of the light of the morning in the sky above the trees. Aziraphale finds himself standing without shoes on the muddy bank of a river, wearing his pyjamas, though he doesn't remember how he'd come to be there. Wasn't it night just a few moments ago? He doesn't remember leaving his house either, but for some reason the blank void in his mind doesn't concern him. There's a pleasant thrum under his skin that could be the heat of the midsummer sun or his own beating heart. But the unsteady thrill under his ribs isn't unwelcome. Something is going to happen. Aziraphale can feel it, though he couldn't for the life of him have said how. Perhaps he's waiting for something, or someone, though he's not sure who would meet him all the way out here, or for what purpose. Hello, he calls. There's no sound in reply, nothing but the faint rustle of the leaves and the bend of small branches. Light starts to spill its way through the trees, scattering across the forest floor and the bank of the river. The water sparkles, and Aziraphale finds himself so transfixed by it that when something touches his shoulder, he thinks nothing of it. For a brief moment he's certain someone stands to his left, but when he turns, there's no one there. Hello, he tries again, not quite frightened, but aware that he is, in some way, very far from home. I've seen you here before. Oh, the voice floats down from above him, but the branches over his head are empty. Is this a question that the very forest is asking of him? Aziraphale's world is far larger and stranger than it was yesterday. How is he to know what's far-fetched anymore?
Yes, I walk through the forest sometimes. Well, every day, really. Through the forest, he says, when he sees so little of it. The voice has moved, sliding through the leaves above him, a smoky purr of flitting amusement. Who's there? Aziraphil asks. Who's there? The words draw back towards him, a flutter to the shape of them, a rustle of leaves, a creak of spring wood, a conker falling to ground, and me, of course. Aziraphil waits, trying to catch a glimpse of something. What should I call you, then? The words are a soft tumble of sounds that he suddenly realizes are a perfect match to his new friend from the trap. They also drift from somewhere behind him now, suggesting that the fairy is moving to always be out of sight. Aziraphale stops, trying to see him. My name? Pfft. The noise is unimpressed, and there's the sound of feet splashing the water. Much louder than the fairy's previous size would indicate. Not your full name. Not unless you want me to spirit you away. There's a laugh under the words, the thought clearly amusing him. Something other people call you. Something that other people call him? Aziraphale. The people call me Aziraphale. He hopes that will do. It's the name others use. He doesn't have another, or at least none he's used for a very long time. He doubts anyone remembers his middle name anymore. Does that count as a secret? Aziraphale. It's spoken out carefully, as if to examine the taste of it. He can hear the sound of leaves rustling behind him, while something that definitely isn't eight inches tall makes a circle at his back. Sounds like more than one name to me. How greedy of you. Aziraphale is about to tell him it's a perfectly normal name when the shape at his back is suddenly visible, just out of the corner of his eye. A shimmer of bare skin and red hair, the faintest glimpse of a honey-gold eye. But when he turns to catch more, it vanishes again. He can't tell if it's a game or caution in the face of someone strange and unknown. But he supposes it's fair. He's a new visitor here, after all, and if he hadn't opened a box yesterday, he would have felt confident proclaiming that fairies didn't exist. It occurs to him now how rude it is to be so certain of something's non-existence. Is there something I can call you? Is it polite to ask a fairy their name? Aziraphale knows you're supposed to be careful not to insult them and to not eat any food they offer you. But the legends are notoriously unhelpful when it comes to... A bare arm brushes his own and the figure that was beside him finally steps fully into view. Crowley, the fairy tells him. You can call me Crowley. Aziraphale blinks through the scatter of light playing across a body considerably larger than it had first appeared. It reveals an untidy sweep of rust-red hair and yellow-gold eyes with strange liquid pupils that seem to shift and shiver the longer Xerophil looks at them. The fairy has a stretch of long, slender limbs and a narrow chest. A faint pattern flows across his bare skin that Xerophil can't quite define. 
The wings remain in this form, swaying and shivering in the faint breeze. The size of them impossible and beautiful now. The texture looks as if it would be powdery soft to a brush of fingers, and she can't help wondering if it would leave an iridescence of red and black smears behind. Crowley. He lets the word shake him into some sort of sense. The fairy has given him a name, and it's only polite to acknowledge it. Pleasure to meet you, Crowley, he offers. Is it? Crowley asks, eyebrows moving upwards in a way that seems genuinely curious. He leans in a little, as if to gorge the truth of them from Aziraphale's face. Is it? Really? Aziraphale can do nothing but watch the wings sway and shift with every change of posture. So fluid and natural that it speaks perfectly to a creature that has had wings their whole life. Not that Aziraphale had ever imagined it was a hoax, like the Cottingley fairies. For a start, none of them had been so unashamedly nude that he can recall. A fact which he's trying very hard not to find distracting now, they are almost of a height. Yes, of course. I'm always happy to meet the people that live here. Crowley pushes his face startlingly close to Aziraphale's cheek, and he does his best to not pull back. Perhaps it would seem impolite given that he's absolutely sure fairies don't have a sense of manners, and Crowley's only being curious. You like to free things that live here too, he points out. I've heard about that. You have? Crowley hums. Didn't think any of your lot gave a damn about this forest, or the creatures who live in it. That's certainly not true, Aziraphale says, quietly, trying not to be rude. I care greatly, and I know other people who do too. Crowley smirks. And yet it was you, and no other, who saved me yesterday, was it not? Aziraphale thinks there's some sort of gratitude there even though not openly acknowledged. But also a test, perhaps, daring him to ask for something in return. He knows better than to do something like that. A most happy accident, don't you think? Crowley doesn't say anything. He simply considers Aziraphale in his rumpled pajamas, which suddenly feels like a terrible outfit to make introductions in. You were much smaller before, he finds himself saying, hoping it's not impolite. Who are you to judge who is small and who is big? Crowley seems more amused than offended. Yes, of course, I'm sorry, that was rude. I just wondered how you came to be the same size as me this time. Because this is a dream, Crowley says, an oddly sharp smile stretching his face. Then he reaches out one of those long hands to touch his rumpled pyjama top. Aziraphale can feel his cold, hard nails through the fabric. Before Crowley's fingers flatten on the fleece and then give a short, hard push. Oh! Aziraphale finds himself in his own bed, the warm sheets tangled around him. Crowley! It's quite clear that there are no fairies in his bedroom with him, though the dream had seemed so very real. He can still feel the faintest pressure on his chest, the way the forest floor had fed on his feet. 
he can still hear the sound of the river, the gurgle of the water. He curses himself for a fool. It was no wonder yesterday he had given him strange dreams. He pushes back the sheets, swinging his feet round and settling them on the floor, only to discover a beech leaf between his toes, the tops of which are somehow now dark with mud. What on earth? He'd worn shoes all of yesterday. There was no way for his feet to have gotten so dirty, unless... His nighttime visitor was real. He surprises himself with a sudden wash of disappointment that expands within his chest when he realizes Crowley is no longer here. Crowley, can he really call him that? Had it really been something other than a dream? In all his life, Aziraphale has never had trouble sleeping. There had been no occurrence of sleepwalking or strangely vivid dreams in the long stretch of his past. Somehow, in the folds of his mind, he knows that what happened while he lay on his bed hadn't been entirely a dream. Not in the way people think. There had been more substance to the way he'd carried himself through it, to the things he had seen and heard and touched. He has the evidence on his feet, just like it had in the box the day before. Aziraphale levers himself up from the bed with the ghost memory of Crowley embedded in his mind. It follows him through his day, while he showers and sets his breakfast, while he sits in an armchair and tries to read only to find himself with his gaze lost in the hatch again, remembering that vibrant red hair, that impish curl of lips. Up close, it had been far easier to see Crowley wasn't human, an underlying strangeness to the familiar shape of a human form. Legs a tick too long, a fluidity of movement in the arms and wings that spoke of a bend in the laws of physics. And yet still terribly handsome. That thought brings a wash of color to Aziraphale's cheeks. He considers that, despite everything, he doesn't feel afraid. He wants to see Crowley again, which might be inadvisable, knowing now that the fairy can slip into his mind, into his dreams, into the hemmed sanctuary of his thoughts. A sort of forced intimacy that's shocking the more he thinks about it. But Crowley had looked for him. He has lunch in the kitchen and then takes a small nap after arranging his bed and changing his muddy bed linens. He partially admits to himself he is secretly hoping for another encounter. An opportunity to perhaps get to know a bit more about his new friend. The simple curiosity of being faced with something new and thrilling in a life that, he would admit, sometimes tastes bland. Afternoon drifts by, and Aziraphale wakes up, rested but undisturbed. He sits for a moment at the edge of his bed, carding over the sinking feeling that the chance and planned encounters aren't going to be repeated. Aziraphale pointedly ignores the strange squeeze of his chest at the realization. He has missed the time for his daily walk, sleeping so soundly, resting from the previous night. Retch already leeches into the sky at the edges, and Aziraphale decides that he will at least take a small stroll along the length of his garden. Breathe in the air of the day. 
There's a warm breeze floating through the windows, and when he opens the door, he's surprised to find three bluebells resting on his mat. Their blooms are far too carefully positioned to be chance, and he hasn't seen them growing around his cottage. Aziraphale kneels, brushing a finger over the soft petals. Oh! Aren't they lovely? And indeed they are, and fragrant too. He takes them into his grasp, trying to be delicate, thoughts swirling through his mind as to their origin, when he fills a vase with water to put them in. It's quite odd, at the very least. The stems are not cut, and they seem to have been plucked from the ground gently enough that the roots are still perfectly intact. Perfect enough to be planted in a new patch of ground. Aziraphale blinks through the fog of a memory that rasps at the back of his mind. Speckles of blue against a sea of green. He'd seen them recently, but where? His hands halt in their movement, shifting the flowers in the vase when he pins the image down. A river he visited once in a dream. Aziraphale smiles wide. He remembers his meeting with Crowley and the myriad bluebirds adorning the banks of the river. It's not a place he knows in this real world, and yet it must exist, because the longer he looks at the flowers, the more he falls into the conviction these bluebells are the same he'd seen in his dream. Their purpose on his doorstep seems to shape itself from that realization. Hard thudding, Xerophil opens the door again, holding the vase in his hands. Thank you so much, Crowley, he says. They are Absolutely lovely. A gift, that's what they are. He finds the thought impossibly touching and reassuring in a way, too. It feels like definite proof that the dream can't possibly have been just the imaginings of his own mind, that it really happened, that he really met a fairy in the woods, changing his life forever. He sets the vase in the middle of the table, so he can see the flowers as he moves around the cottage. Perhaps a part of him believes they'll disappear if he doesn't, but they remain vibrant and alive. He eats a late dinner while they sit there, their bells still rounded and perfect, not a single crushed or wilted petal to be seen. Crowley must have been so careful with them. Aziraphale finds himself smiling like a lovesick fool, fork held halfway to his mouth, and he makes himself stop. It's probably not the most sensible idea to allow himself to be so taken with a creature that was widely regarded to be filled with tricks and wiles. All he has to go on is the wealth of folklore available and the untrustworthy nature of the creatures of the wild was a running theme. Which can't be a coincidence. There must be some truth to it. You're far too old to be taken in by fairies, he tells himself over a particularly good shepherd's pie. No matter how fascinating they are. And handsome, his brain adds, entirely without his consent. Which is ridiculous, because outside of some nebulous dreamscape, the creature could fit in Xerophil's cupped hands, wings as well. Also, he's probably never going to see him again. He'd gone his whole life assuming fairies didn't exist, 
and he'd never seen a speck of proof, which suggests they're only seen if they want to be, or unless they become trapped somehow. No, he's unlikely to catch another glimpse of those black and red wings for as long as he lives. This is simply going to go down as an unexpectedly magical experience, which he will always remember. But still, Crowley had seen fit to leave a gift for releasing him, which seems, perhaps, a tentative gesture of friendship. And no one had ever accused Aziraphale Fell of not being friendly. On his next trip into town, he picks up his normal shopping list, but he also buys two boxes of paper cake cases. He chooses the colored ones decorated with flowers and buttons and hundreds and thousands. Then he picks up some fresh strawberries and raspberries and an extra punnet of grapes. The raspberries grow wild around here, and the strawberries are rather abundant in people's gardens. He thinks perhaps the grapes might be interesting to someone who might never have tasted them. He spends an evening carefully filling three paper cases with fruit, and then he takes them into the garden and sets them on the remains of a tree stump at the very bottom, close to the hedge and beyond it the forest. He is about to head back into the house when he realizes that he's not entirely sure of the rules regarding gifts to the creatures of the wild, and he doesn't want to find himself putting Crowley in any sort of awkward position, or worse, offering a gift he can't take. Oh my! He says, at a slightly louder than normal speaking volume, and feeling a little silly about it. I bought entirely too much fruit today. I suppose I will have to leave some out here for whoever wants it. He has no reason to believe that anyone is watching him or listening. But he also has no reason to believe he is unobserved either. He heads back inside, watching the sun sink beneath the horizon, painting the cottage in darkness. And he hopes. The next morning, he finds the empty cases on the lawn, Flown there once they were no longer weighed down, he imagines. They are a little battered at the edges, and he can see no sign of the fruit that was inside. Though he supposes it could have been eaten by a manner of wild creature around here, from birds to foxes. He puts the paper in the recycling bin and tries not to be too disappointed. Anathema had asked to meet at the local library today. He'd promised to help her translate a book she'd found in her grandmother's belongings. It was written in an odd mixture of Old English, Welsh and Latin. He was rather looking forward to the chance to work on a few skills which had gone rusty in the last decade or so. His first love had always been unearthing the secrets of old books. He's halfway into his coach and stepping off the mat when he spots it just outside his front door. In fact, he's in so much of a rush that he almost treads on it. Aziraphale pulls his foot back just in time and then bends to see it more clearly. It's a small, polished stone, a lovely thing in shades of white, pink, and orange. It looks like something you'd find at the bottom of a stream bed, the slow currents tumbling and smoothing it to a perfect, glossy shine. It's beautiful, 
and there's no possible way it could have found its way to Aziraphale's door unless someone left it there on purpose. Oh, he picks it up, feels the silky weight of it in his hand. The way his thumb glides whisper soft across its polished surface. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you. The world around him is quiet, but he knows that this is a gift as well. A gift beyond the first thank you. A gift possibly in response to his own. He tucks it into his pocket and finds the day suddenly much warmer and more inviting than before. The next day he leaves Crowley a peach and a square of chocolate, though he's unsure about the last. He knows it's poisonous to some animals in large quantities. But Crowley seems very pleased with the offering, because in return Aziraphale finds a peony in full bloom left on the tree stump for him, and a scatter of acorns arranged in a manner which he thinks is supposed to mean something. Aziraphale doesn't want to be the one who stops the game of gift exchanges. He collects duck feathers from the local pond and leaves them all layered together in a wicker basket he found in the drawing room. When he ventures into the garden in the morning, he finds the feathers and the basket missing and a hastily bound sprig of lavender and mint left in their place. They are snail shells, and in return he leaves expensive Belgian chocolate. A shiny Roman coin is answered with a long swan feather. The days bring new and lovely things that he matches in kind. A ball of sheep wool, dried banana chips, a yellow rose, an embroidered handkerchief, a smooth stone with a perfect hole through the center, an old farthing marked 1951, a ball of red yarn. Aziraphale spends a whole day learning how to make jam, and then another afternoon testing the lids of small spice pots to see if they could be opened by tiny hands of indeterminate strength. It goes on for weeks, and Aziraphale has never been so delighted by all the small fascinations of the world. He hasn't felt this happy for years. To be continued in Chapter 2